When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're... Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, good morning, I'm Gary Payne and uh, I'm here once more with that rascal, Peter Hart. I'm a wascally wascal. And today, Pete, we're going to continue. This is the third in the series on the Second Royal Norfolk's and the Battle of Kahima. Which in turn is part of the bigger series on the Royal Norfolk Regiment, which is stretched back over the eons. Yeah, exactly. Now, I think it's fair to say today's um, going to be quite a difficult podcast. There's some very harrowing quotes today. So we're not going to be doing any silly voices, are we, Pete? No, no. Only my own silly voice, if you see what I mean. Uh, no, it's it's too too graphic and too horrible. And this is one of those ones where we think about just how awful it must have been for both... Uh, both UNB. sides fighting in the jungle uh, must have been awful. Now, where did we leave it? So we've got the 2nd Royal Norfolk Regiment who were part of an ambitious outflanking manoeuvre. That was called Operation Strident, Pete. Yeah, Operation Loud. <laughs> Strident, that's us, Gary. Now, the idea was to circle round behind the Japanese southern flank through absolutely appalling forested hill country to relieve the trapped British garrison of Kahima. Now, after a really terrible journey, they were approaching their objective on GPT Ridge on the night of the 3rd of May, 1944. So, Pete, how could you summarise their plan? Well, yeah, um, basically, uh, the dismounted carrier platoon, that's part of headquarter company, or support company, I'm never sure which it is, uh, was to move forward before dawn uh, uh, to take a position at the foot, we'll put a map up at the foot of Oaks Hill. But on the night of uh, on the night of on the morning uh, by five thirty in the morning uh, on the fourth of May, and they were there to act as a screen to cover the advance of the main body of the battalion as it moved forward. Now, what order are they in? Well, first one is A Company under Major Swanson. Who's next, Gary? Uh, that was D Company under Major Hatch. Then followed Battalion Tactical Headquarters. That, in essence, that's Robert Colonel Robert Scott and his staff. You then had the HQ Company under Major Baldero. Then C Company under Major Murray Brown. And B Company in reserve under the uh, 
imaginatively named Major Twiddle. You'll regret that when you find out what happens. <laughs> this is one of those. It's not good for anyone, is it, who's involved in this? Now, so the carrier platoon move off first down the hill to take up their position at Oaks Hill. And uh, the first uh, thing we're going to have is, 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 is Sergeant Ben McRae, carrier platoon. It was half light when I first went down the hill. I knew where they were, and I had to try and get as close as I could to find out could I deal with them or what. I observed a good six Japanese floating around, one leaning against a tree smoking, another two digging a pit right by the Nala. I think they must have seen or heard all the A company coming up behind me, because suddenly they all darted into their foxholes and bunkers. I was to, uh, told to go in and deal with them, but I saw there was far too many, and I couldn't get across that nuller in time to do anything. We'd have been wiped out before we even got there. I went back and saw Russell, the intelligence sergeant. Who've you seen, Benny? he said. I told him, I've only seen six, but there's a lot more Japs behind digging in up the hill. It rose quite sharply the other side of the nuller, and I knew they were digging in there. By then, we'd fired on them. I think we got a couple and one of my chaps had been wounded. Now, as A Company come up behind them, uh, they, they covered that Japanese bunker while the rest of the battalion moves round to the right to avoid the obstacle. And D Company takes over the lead role, role, role as they're moving through the, the, the thick jungle. Uh, two section front with the men only a couple of yards apart. What, what, what sort of terrain are they going through? Well, just give us an well, idea. Well, it, it's a mixture of thorn trees bramble bamboo and and miscellaneous undergrowth and you're going to read a quote by lieutenant sam horner of hq company captain fulton the second in command of d company sat down on a log with me just just sort of chatting for a moment he said well sam better get off and earn my mc off he rushed and 10 seconds later he was shot through the head by a sniper that's the way it went now, despite that loss, the company continued to move forward. They're moving down the ridge, not along the crest, which was still held by the Japanese. And this time, we've got a quote from uh, Fred Hazel again from you, Gary. We started advancing slowly through the trees. We hadn't gone 50 yards before we came under fire. The Japs had moved towards us and positioned themselves up in the trees, strapped up in the trees, so that when you fired, they didn't fall out when they got hit. We advanced through them so that we were being shot at from both the front and the back. A shot whistled past my head and I thought to myself, Jesus. I ran forward to a tree and lay down beside it, poked my rifle forward and poked my head round the tree. Obviously, whoever it was was waiting for me to do just that because another shot rang out and hit the tree. The bark opened up and, st and stuck in my cheeks. I thought I'd been hit and I sort of rolled back and I felt it. Of course, that only pushed the splinter into my face all the more. There was no blood. I thought, that's funny. I picked all these little pieces out. I thought I was off back to Calcutta at that stage. He means evacuated wounded. He thought he was quite badly hit. Now, this is a, a, one of those things. They'd spent all that time, hadn't they, Gary, learning how, dis how iron discipline. You only fire when there's a visible target. They, they'd done that in so many exercises, so much training. Uh, is, that, uh, is that what you need in jungle warfare, do you think? Well, no, the Japanese, they concealed themselves skillfully to ensure that they opened up first to devastate an effect in any firefight. Now, Fred Hazel goes on to say, this is one of the reasons we lost as many men as we did. Had we gone for forward spraying, we would probably have done better. But our instructions always were, don't fire till you see the whites of their eyes. 
bearing in mind that this ammunition had been carried for nine days around these confounding, confounded hills, you didn't want to go spraying it about. It's sort of one of those problems. You, you, you can't do wrong for doing right, if you see what you can't do right for doing wrong. So anyway, uh, Major Hatch reports the situation back to Robert Scott, who's back at, with his technical headquarters, following up. They're immediately behind D Company at this stage. Uh, and Hatch is ordered, Major Hatch is ordered to bear left and up the side of the ridge to get as high as possible. Uh, and so this is uh, Lieutenant Sam Horner, who's with headquarters company, and he says, we got stuck. Everybody stopped and nothing seemed to happen. Robert Scott realised at once what was happening and just shouted in all directions. Start blasting them and advance. Shoot up in the trees. Get shooting. Once he'd given the order, away we went. I thought he was from Cornwall. I missed the Cornish pirate, but it's not appropriate, is it, Gary? Hmm. Now, the pace of the advance increased as the men sprayed the undergrowth and trees all around them, throwing grenades with enthusiasm. As the jungle began to open out in front of them, Hazel had a nerve-wrenching escape. And uh, this is what he said. When we got out of the long grass, I said to the lads, get down on your hands and knees and crawl. We came out into the open. There was this slope going up, fairly open, and a grenade landed, believe it or not, between my hands. It rolled out between my knees and feet under the chap behind me. I yelled out and flattened myself as everybody else did, and the grenade went off. I thought to myself, oh, my godfathers. I turned round expecting to see this chap in shreds, instead of which he was sitting back on his haunches. He looked at me and he blinked. I said, are you all right? He said, yeah. He opened his shirt and the grenade had disintegrated into a powder. It looked like there were hundreds of blackheads on his chest, which you could squeeze all out. He spat out a bit of blood, but he seemed to be perfectly all right, and he carried on. I believe quite a lot of the jack grenades were like that. They were very inferior, inferior, and instead of breaking up into nasty pieces of metal, they just completely disintegrated. Now, uh, Hazel and D Company, the rest of D Company, they run into into a clearing where they're confronted in front of them by a, jack, a Japanese bunker, which they charged, and, and Fred Hazel continues the tale. When we got to the top of the ridge, it was almost like World War One. There were four, five or six Japs. I imagine they must have run out of ammunition. They suddenly leapt out of their holes and raced at us with their bayonets. They held them up in the air. Of course, they didn't get very far because the lads' machine guns just went like that. The reserve company that was moved right up, that's the B company, remember they were in reserve, Gary? They're moving up for the next phase of the attack. Uh, from the edge of the jungle, down across the open area, uh, of GPT Ridge. Now, this is an awful bit because as they go, they pass by. Remember, Captain Fulton was shot in the head. Yeah. And the next, there's a couple of descriptions here. And they, 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 they are, they're just horrible. Um, think of his family. Uh, well, all right. And you're going to be uh, Sergeant Bert Fit of B Company. We went from the forming up place, got onto the start line. I remember seeing some of, some of them lying there. In particular, poor old Captain Mickey Fulton. He had been hit through the top of his head and the scalp was laying open. You could see his brain actually moving and he had a pleading look in his eye, more or less asking you with appearance to put a bullet through him and finish him off. Well, you couldn't do that. You wouldn't do it anyway. But it was obvious that he hadn't long to go. Now, the, the lads of uh, B Company, they're, they're all moving past, and, and headquarters company, they're all moving past. And it, it comes in quite a few of the interviews I did. It's awful. And another one who goes past is Private Bert May, his headquarters company. I saw Fulton lying on the path with a bullet through his head. 
He was clawing at his watch as if he had to see what the time was, but I think it was just a nervous reaction. Poor chap. Uh, it's, it's horrible, isn't it? It is. Now, as the forward companies fought their way forward, the medics followed on diligently, picking up the pieces as best they could. And uh, you're going to read Captain John Mather of HQ Company. That's an unfortunate phrase I now realise, picking up the pieces. Mm. I kept up with the troops. I was running part of the way and so were my chaps. They and I dealt with anybody who was injured, give them the treatment and then left them behind for other people to take back. Morphine, that's the main thing. We had some special tubes about two inches long. They were like toothpaste tubes. There was a needle on it which you could break off, turn round and put on so that when you squeezed the tube, the morphine solution came out of the needle. You pushed the needle in and of course they got the morphine. You had a little label to stick on them. That's to stop them doing more than once. Severe pain causes shock, and if you relieve the pain, then you tend to relieve the shock. If the wound was very filthy, you'd clean it up with an antiseptic, uh, flavine. If there was a lot of bleeding, you had to get a pack on and bind it up. A strip of bandage with a wad of cotton wool attached to it. Every chap had one tucked into his dressing pocket, and you, and you could take that off and put it on and bind it up. Then it would depend on the size of the wound. If it was only small, we'd perhaps use his dressing. But if it was any size, we'd got some bigger ones. Wrap them round. That protected it and kept the dirt out. If there were enough stretcher bearers handy, they could perhaps move him or just leave him and let other people catch up. Now, Sam, Sam Horner, I'm going to be, I'm now moving on to be Sam Horner as well. Uh, he's with the signal company and he has an awful time as signal officer. Communications is crucial, but there's so much that can go wrong. And this is what Sam says. I was to stick with the CO with a signal corporal and his wireless set, which was of critical importance. That was our communication with the whole battalion. I had to stick with him at all the time. It was as simple as that. Keep a watch on everything that was going on and be prepared to pass messages. If I got a message from one of the companies, I'd tell the CO immediately. <laughs> well, <laughs> what? Well, he's, he's therefore mortified when a valve <coughs> fails in his radio and uh, Sam Horner goes on to say... There was a pause and the radio set went, foot. So I said, right. We've got to get this ratty thing working again. They were, they were valve radios, and the platoon was very well trained in changing valves by sequence, testing all the time. They knew what they, what they felt like, and we just solemnly started doing it. I think it took seven or eight minutes. It seemed to take an age, with growling from Robert Scott behind. Bloody wireless sets, bloody signalers. That was normal. You didn't pay any attention to that. We just worked away at it. And then, thank goodness, between us, we got it right. And away she went. Now, well, D Company, they've done a fantastic job as the assault company. And they cleared GPT Ridge as far as the fringe of the jungle by 12.30 on that. that this is still the 4th of May. The battalion, they're closing up on the, on, a new, on the start line in preparation for the next stage of the attack on the lower ridge. And this was going to be undertaken by platoons drawn from A and B Company. And uh, some of them are getting a bit impatient. And uh, can we imagine one who's getting impatient from B Company? Who do you imagine getting impatient? Well, this is what uh, Sergeant Bert Winky Fit has to say. We should have had artillery support. That was all laid on to blast GPT Ridge before we attacked it. But things got rather desperate as we laid on the start line for my company. We were getting shot up and hadn't got a chance. Now, this is interesting because very, this is the time when individuals can make a dif difference. Uh, there's men of action present and they, and they take control of, of, of what's going on. And one of them, of course, is Bert Fitt, who is an amazing soldier at this time of his life. 
I lost my brain gunner, a chap's named Grogan. I grabbed the Bren and I had a rifle slung on my shoulder. I said, right, and I called out to Davis who was commanding the left-hand platoon. I told him I had enough laying here and not fighting. I was going forward. Now, Colonel Scott was another one who lost patience. He decided that it was... Uh, to maintain, if he was to maintain any kind of momentum in the attack and capitalise on D Company's achievement, they couldn't afford any more time waiting. And this is what Lieutenant Sam Horner says about the situation. According to the orders, there should have been a pause. The 99th Field Regiment, that's the Royal Artillery, were all ready for the, for the, the word fire to put down heavy fire on our objective. Robert Scott decided absolutely rightly that the momentum was going and he kept it going. The battery commander said, what about the guns? Because remember, the battery commander would be with them. No, no, forget it. We'll just get straight on through. He went right on as far as was possible to get. This is the momentum. This is all about the momentum. Well, Scott was itching to be at the sharp end of the battle. Finally, it all got too much for him. And once more, Sam Horner goes on to say, Bob! Scott just disappeared. He ran off. It was left to the initiative of the co company commanders. They knew what they had got to do. They knew themselves when they'd got to stop. They couldn't get any further. Scott ran off with A Company, who were then the spearhead, and practically led the assault. Well, that's not really a, a conventional action, is it, by Scott? And uh, one of the observers is Captain John Howard, who's the intelligence officer of HQ 4th Brigade. He was just bloody ridiculous. He behaved as a colonel shouldn't behave. He was always with the leading sections, if possible. He was way for way up forward during the advance to contact down GPT Ridge. Fortunately, Henry Conder, that's Major Henry Conder, who was a very able soldier, was there at battalion headquarters and managed to keep things going smoothly and orderly, even though Robert was behaving as a platoon commander. This is really, really interesting. I, I find it. Well, yeah, because perhaps Scott, more by luck than judgment, perhaps had divined the simple truth of jungle warfare. And this is what Sam Horner had to say about the situation. Well, he explains it, doesn't he? He says, in this jungle fighting, you can't, as an officer, a platoon commander or company commander, you can't give orders to people ahead where, where they've got to, where they're to go, what they're to do, because you can't see. That would be the tree things, wouldn't it? The officers have got to lead from the front. That is a characteristic of jungle warfare. That's what Robert Scott was doing. He was leading the attack from the front where he could see what was going on. You couldn't give orders to someone in front if you couldn't see what was happening. Now, this, the raging colonel, he joined in the attack which was launched at around about 1435. And for the first time, we're going to hear from Sergeant William Robinson of A Company. Bob Scott lined us up with Bren guns. We got a sling over your shoulder, taking the weight, with a man behind us with extra ammunition. Bob Scott at that time was ill with malaria, and all he had was a pistol and his cud stick. That's a sticky thing, isn't it? Yeah. His famous words were, Right out, boys, let's go. That was it. The instructions were to fire at everything, spraying some down, some up, and forward, of course, because there was a bunker down there. Up to that time, I'd not seen a Japanese at all, but hidden in this semi-clearing, low bushes, that sort of thing, several got up and started running away. They didn't run far, because the amount of firepower was terrific. About 12 Bren guns. I heard Bert Davis was hit because he shouted, Robbo, take over! It's yours! The bunker was taken. I never went in. Uh, there were just bunk grenades thrown in and somebody went in to make sure it was clear and that was it. Now, ahead of them, 
Uh, well, no, uh, Sergeant Fitz leading the right-hand platoon in this attack. And uh, this is you uh, as Bert Fitz. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We attacked. We went straight in with the bayonet, with what we'd got, and we took the position. I used the brain gun for the remainder of that attack, running with it, using it from the hip. The Japanese positions were facing outwards so they had to come out into the open if they wanted to fight us and that suited us we wanted them in the open so that we could see what was going on we tore down gpt ridge as fast as we could go we were coming into the open you've got some place places that were thick other places were more open and then there was more of a track going down about halfway down leading my right hand platoon i saw what looked like to me like a piece of flat ground and I thought perhaps that was a bunker facing the opposite way. I jumped onto this parapet and when I looked down I was looking down the muzzle of a mountain field gun. I threw a grenade in because I knew there was people still there. Three got out and my runner, a chap named Swinsco, he came up on his shoulder with his rifle and he shot the first one that was running away from us over the valley. He twizzled him like a rabbit. A marvellous shot. He got him all right. We then got two prisoners. Now, there's two things about that. One is that uh, we ought to... I mean, this is Japanese. They're, they're, they're human beings as well. There's a lot of people dying in this podcast on both sides. Now, that 70mm gun, uh, Gary, we must go and see it because that's actually... You can still see it today. It's outside the entrance or 
museums change. It was outside the entrance of the Royal Norfolk Regiment Museum, Castle Hill uh, in Norwich. Uh, and, and it's strange to see I knew the man who captured it. Uh, now, the next bit is really awful. Uh, that Those two prisoners uh, meet a terrible fate, which is against the rules of war. And you're go- uh, going to tell a story of what happens from, uh, from as Bert fit. I left these two prisoners with one man, a soldier I could trust, and told him to search them and bring them along. Colonel Scott came up. I told him we got these prisoners and he said, where are they? I told him that they were being brought along by one of the chaps and he said, good. Well, up came this fellow, no prisoners. So I asked him where they were. He said, back there up the track. I said, what do you mean? They're going to be gone. He said, never. They won't go anywhere. Remember my brother got bayoneted in a hospital bed? When I searched them, I took these Norfolk territorial badges off them. Well, I bayoneted them. Both of them. I killed them. So I had to go and tell the CO. When I told him that we hadn't got the prisoners, he flew at me and said, bring the person who let them escape to me. I said, they didn't escape. They took these badges off them. They're officers' badges of the 4th, 5th or 6th Battalion Norfolks. He said, yes, so what? I said, well, his brother was bayoneted in bed in hospital. He bayoneted them and got his own back. Colonel Scott said, that saved me cutting their bloody throats. Now, this is all bluff manliness, but it's pretty awful. It's awful on both sides, because that, that, that's referring to the capture of Singapore, when a lot of the Norfolks were killed. There was a lot of bad feeling between the Norfolks and the Japanese uh, because of that. Um, now, what's happening, Gary? Where, where are we in a bigger thing? The immediate objective, has that been taken? Yeah, the, ob- the objective was gained, but consolidation was imperative in case of a, a Japanese counterattack. And... Uh, this is what Lieutenant Sam Horner says. Everybody everybody got as far as they could. So the word came round, dig in. We dug in there and it was the top of GPT Ridge. Robert got on the wireless and said, objective captured. There was a code word for it, I think. Divisional headquarters started coming through to the brigadier saying, what about the fire plan? You haven't had the fire plan yet. Well, they went straight on through to the objective without it. Robert sent a message to the divisional commander. If you don't believe, oh, very tempting. If you, if you don't believe me, go and bloody well look. So nearly drifted into the Cornish, Cornish pirate there. But now, as can be imagined, Scott's relaxed approach grated a little at brigade and divisional headquarters. And Captain John Howard saw the other side of these exchanges. The brigadier was fuming and fretting. Division were fuming and fretting, saying, don't you want the artillery? Don't you want the artillery? We said, no, we're not ready yet. They said, you ought to have been. Then somewhere about mid-afternoon, the Norfolks did condescend to get on the radio to say that we've captured our artillery. What? With no artillery? Yes, with no artillery. Hmm. Yeah. We've captured our objective. Oh, what did I say? You said we've captured our artillery. Oh, I'm going bonkers. It's the stress, Gary, of reading these terrible quotes. Now, on the left of the attack, they slightly overran the objective and came under heavy machine gun fire from a complex series of bunker positions, which would soon be known as Norfolk Bunker, which was about 40 yards away on their left front, further down GPT Ridge towards the Kahima Road. Now, they could go no further, and so the priority became consolidation of the gains that they'd made all so far on GPT Ridge. And this is what Sergeant Fred Hazel of D Company had to say. Someone shouted out, We've arrived, dig in, prepare yourselves for a counter-attack. Fortunately, at that spot, there were plenty of old Japanese holes, 
At that time, I had 12 to 14 men left. The others were wounded mainly. I dropped a couple of men in this hole, a couple of men there, a couple of men here. All the time, you were being fired at. We didn't appreciate at that stage when we stopped that there was this confounded bunker about 70 yards in front of us with umpteen machine guns inside it. At that moment, Major Hatch appeared and he said, come with me, I want to sort the company positions out for the night. With that, he strode through the positions I'd got my lads in and started going down towards this bunker, which I don't think he was aware of. Of course, I had to follow him. We were standing there in the open area with this bunker down here on our left and he was saying, that would be a good place to have a Bren gunner, there. All the time, bullets were whistling past our heads. I was thinking to myself, crikey, how on earth are we going to get men to dig in there? He said to me, we're being fired at. Let's make ourselves less conspicuous. He dropped down on his hands and knees. I dropped down with him. I was nearest to the bunker and my head was level with his waist. A shot rang out and I thought it had taken my nose off. Godfathers, it was bloody painful. I went, whoa, they've got my bloody nose. I put my hand up there and my nose was still there. No, they haven't. Miss me. What had happened was I think it had passed under my nose. I had a blister come up. The Major said, it missed you, but I think it's hit me. I looked and it had got him in the leg, in an artery, unfortunately. I tried to put a tourniquet on, but I had nothing to do the job properly with. I dragged him back under cover, over the ridge, and handed him over to the medics. I was very upset in the morning when they told me he had died in the night. So all along the front, they've got to the, the consolidation phase, haven't they? They're, they're, they're digging in. What They're creating a rough battalion perimeter, uh, you know, uh, which was defendable. So they, 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 uh, But there's one problem. There's a lot of wounded by this time. There, I mean, not just hatch, but there's wounded all over the place. And you're going to be uh, burnt fit again. Twiddle got hit through the stomach, and that knocked him out altogether. He had to hand over to Randall. Captain Randall was a very quiet reserve man. Nobody knew what his fighting qualities were. Randall was hit in the leg, more of a walking wound. If you got hit out there, we were so low in numbers you couldn't afford to stop for a minor injury. You had to carry on fighting and that was that. The CO had been hit, a scalp wound. It wasn't too serious. With him, he was such a hard nut that you'd got to knock his head off if you wanted to call it serious with him. We were very, very thin on the ground then for leaders. Now this is the point. This is where the, the this is where the, the old soldiers thing, uh, uh, men making a difference, really. And 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 I think the endless training does pay dividends here, doesn't it? Uh, the, the platoon sergeants like fit. They've got they've got a lot of tactical training. They knew what they were doing. Uh, they could have they could deploy their men in accordance with the simple tactical principles that have been drilled into them. And certainly Sergeant Bert Fit is is brilliant at this stage. We then went round because I'd already consolidated my platoon in such a position that I was covering the right flank of the battalion. I interlaced my light machine guns. I had three so I could cover with the right hand gun right along the front of my company area. With the left hand gun I could do the same. So if anything happened all you got to do is press the trigger of the guns and they'd have to walk through a stream of bullets. We went right down to the bottom and dug our own foxholes for the night. We put two rings round. We had an outer ring of defence and an inner ring. If anybody came to the outer ring, that was all right. We could let them come through and the inner ring would deal with it. They couldn't get back out again. So we had them well trapped. 
This was done under heavy fire. We were really getting shot up at that time. Now it's a machine gun post on the flank, so they they create across a, a, a zone right across. It's, it's good stuff, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, now inside the perimeter, Captain John Mather organised the regimental aid post to deal with the casualties as they were brought in. And this is what Captain John Mather, the medical officer, has to say. We arrived where we could go no further with the Japs ahead and around. We came across this Japanese depressed area in the ground, which had been their first aid place. In the base of it, there were narrow dugouts, enough to lay a chap in. We dug more holes, of course, but it was raining. God, it was wet. With it being so wet, you dug a hole and it filled up with water. You couldn't really put chaps in there, but you had to because you'd got to keep them down. He means out of, out of fire, risk of being hit again. We had capes and things to keep some of the water off them, but I'm afraid a lot of them were in a bad way as regards comfort. <laughs> that just sounds a nightmare. Imagine, you know, being wounded and then lying in filthy water. Now, the Japanese-held Norfolk bunker position dominated any possible direct route down the road to Jotsoma. Now, this meant that the many wounded were trapped in the regimental aid post with no chance of evacuation except back along the awful, torturous route by which they'd come. It also meant that the battalion could not receive ammunition or supplies except by the, uh, the medium of parachute drops. This, this Operation Strident is bloody risky. Uh, the Royal Scots, where are they? I, I'm sure they were meant to be following up. What's happened to them, Well, Gary? You, you're quite right. They should have made the follow-through attack uh, and were already assigned to covering any possible attack from the high ground to their rear, which the Norfolks had so recently so they vacated. Were, they, were, they couldn't help. They were already busy covering their asses, if you see what I mean. The, the Norfolk yeah, and in these circumstances, it was considered crucial to make some kind of attack to try and capture the Norfolk bunker while the Japanese garrison was still disorganised by the loss of most of GPT Ridge. Hmm. The officer chosen to carry out the attack was Lieutenant David Glass uh, with his dismounted carrier platoon. As the, uh, the battalion lay only a few yards away from the bunker, Glass had to make a frontal attack without any artillery support. He knew the risks. Mm. Well, this is uh, Lieutenant Sam Horner, headquarters company. He says this, David, that's David Glass, gave me his watch and said, take that and write to, uh, to Louise, won't you, and see that she gets this. I said, we're going to see you again shortly, David. I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it. He just knew he was going to get killed. Off they went. They, they, they overran the bunker. David Glass got killed and they couldn't hold it because they were shot off it again by other bunkers below on the, the hill. They had quite a lot of casualties and the rest came back. The order of the day was then to dig in where you are, deal with casualties, and that would be it for the moment. I find that, that these uh, reminds me a bit of some of the Gallipoli up on uh, the, the Anzac where the posts almost don't defend each other. Sorry, defend themselves. They defend each other. They're interlinked bunkers defending each other. Uh, so if you take one, you'll get shot off by the others. It's, uh, yeah. What about the dead and the wounded? Well, they're left scattered across the battlefield. Many of the officers and NCOs were at the forefront of efforts to organise the collection and rescue of the men who'd fought under them. And uh, this is what Private Burt May had to say. Old Winky Fit came down to ask for volunteers. We went down to this big bunker to try and rescue some people. This lad was crying, and every time we made a movement, so the blooming Japs must have shot him again, but we couldn't see where it was coming from or where the chap was. So what he's saying is that chap's getting shot because they're moving. It's, it's um, ah, terrible. causing uh, a reaction. 
Now, uh, the medical officer, John Mowther, he's doing, he's doing a lot of very brave work here. He's crawling into no man's land. He's trying to bandage up emergency cases. He's trying to keep them alive until the stretcher bearers can get to them. There's no one else can do this. Uh, uh, so, and, and this is what Captain John Mather says. He's, tra- he's explaining what he's doing. He says this. Major Twiddle was hit by a piece of flying shrapnel and his tummy was opened. His, his guts were hanging out. He was out on the perimeter and he was under fire. The Japs were there. You had to crawl to get to him if you wanted, if, if you wanted to remain alive. He, he, it means he has to crawl, yeah. I got to him, kept down, and I was able to push his innards back in. I sprinkled him with sulf- sulfonamide powder, put a big dressing on his tummy, bound him up and gave him small amounts of cold water. I gave him morphine, of course. I had to look after him like that for a while because there was no way to get him out. He was conscious. I asked him how he was, and I told him we'd get him get him away as soon as possible. But there was no way just now. I went out to him again in an hour or two's time, and he seemed fairly comfortable. It lasted 12 or more hours, and then we got him away. Carried him without lifting him much, as painlessly as possible. I didn't know what was wrong inside him. You couldn't see, for one thing. Um, no. I, I think that's a, a, a twelve a, hours. Yeah, and the use of the word "tummy," the sort, which is sort of almost childish word, but it sort of brings it home to you. Mm. Captain Mather didn't see himself as a hero, but he was acting in the highest traditions of the Royal Army Medical Corps in putting the lives of others before his own. And he goes on to say this: "I wasn't a nervous sort. When there was a job to do, you'd got to do it, and that was it." You didn't have time to think about other things. And, and this, a lot of these men say things like that. They're, they're so busy doing other things, they don't have time. But to me, that doesn't stop it being outstandingly courageous, uh, brilliant work. No, the Norfolks, they'd won a notable victory in capturing most of GPT Ridge. But as is often the case, it didn't appear like that to the men who crouched in their slip trenches during that night. Well, you could, if you look at one way, they're, they're cut off, aren't they? They are cut off. The Royal Scots can't come to their rescue because they're defending their rear. They're out, they're out of it. Um, there's no way back. They can't go back the way they came, not with their wounded. Uh, and think- also, just think about it. They're exhausted. They'll be grieving for their losses. They're not sure what's happening. Uh, and <laughs> they'd be as miserable as sin. Yeah. But would they complain? Hmm. I'm not sure. Uh, yes. <laughs> You'd say no, I'd say yes. Um, I, I, and that's where we're going to leave this because uh, this is too... Uh, we think the, the, these two podcasts, this and the, the final one on the battle, are, are too... They're too graphic to, to, to have too much of it. It's just, uh, it becomes relentless, the, the, the scale of losses and the horribleness of the fight, fighting and the way people are just cut down in their prime. So we'll be dealing with the, the, the next part of the battle, the assault on Norfolk Bunker. What a story that is. And uh, Bert Fitt and uh, Captain Randall, all these people we've been following, uh, so it's their, their destiny and we'll find out what happens to them. Um, Sorry, there's been no accents. I know some of you love the accents, but we... Some of you don't. Some of you don't. Uh, but, uh, and if you, uh, uh, if you want to know more, there, there is a book on the Royal Norfolks written by somebody lovely. and um, We'll put a link up to it. But, but most of all, we want you just to have a think about what that fighting was like up on GPT Ridge and just have a think about just how terrible it was. And, and uh, those lads, they're all dead now. Uh, but... Uh, a lot of them gave their lives, uh, and uh, they'd have lived till they'd have lived another sixty, seventy and years. Just have a just have a think about those lads after exhausted and, and in their trenches, and just thinking about the mates they've lost. Just 
Just have a think about that. Right, that's it for today. Till the next time. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only two pounds per month and get ad free listening and bonus content you can find links for both on our facebook and twitter accounts sounds great doesn't it